soy indita, mexicanita, que vendo flores y en el portal también Welcome, friends and allies, to the Texocentrist podcast. I am your host, Jasmine Kassur. The battles of the Texas Revolution are rightly remembered and honored. But what many people don't know is that it was not the first Texas Revolution. What few Texans recognize is that the first Tejano and American fight for freedom ended on August 18, 1813, in vicious bloodshed and ignominy somewhere south of San Antonio near the banks of the Medina River. This is the first in a two-part series I will be doing on what's known to scholars as the Gutierrez McGee expedition, though neither man would see the revolution to its unfortunate conclusion. Before I start, I want to say a few things about my main source for this episode. I'm taking most of my details from a book called Forgotten Battlefield of the First Texas Revolution, written by Ted Schwartz, and edited by Robert H. Thonhoff. Schwartz died in 1975 before seeing his manuscript of Forgotten Battlefield published in 1985. Now, to the history. We began with Father Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla and the Grito Dolores on September 16, 1810. Father Hidalgo was the parish priest in Dolores near Guanajuato, Mexico. He was part of a criollo conspiracy hoping to wrest power from the Spanish peninsulares. If that's not a tongue twister, I don't know what is. Father Hidalgo learned that their conspiracy had been discovered and acted immediately. He armed his parishioners and from the pulpit of his church encouraged them to revolt. The revolutionaries who followed Father Hidalgo were both mestizos and native people, and they formed a violent mob which proceeded to pillage and kill both Spanish peninsulares and New World criollos until they were defeated by Spanish royal forces in January 1811. Father Hidalgo was captured in March of 1811, trying to escape to the U.S., and he was executed on July 30th. The struggle would continue without him by guerrilla warfare and the occasional flare-up, but only in Texas did the rebellion continue to hold out. It came to Texas after Jose Bernardo Maximiliano Gutierrez de Lara was commissioned by the rebel forces to solicit aid from the United States on March 17, 1811. After Father Hidalgo's capture on March 21st, Gutierrez vowed to continue his mission and made his way to Natchitoches, Louisiana. Gutierrez vowed to continue his mission and made his way to Natchitoches, Louisiana, arriving there in August. The trip was by no means uneventful. Not long after crossing the Sabine River into no man's land between Texas and the United States, his party of about a dozen rebels, led by a Captain Jose Menchaca, were attacked by Spanish royalists on the night of September 17th. All but two of the men escaped, but Gutierrez, escaping in his drawers and shirt, lost his credentials in about 600 pesos. The group was rescued by a band of volunteers in Natchitoches, and were taken to that American outpost. In October, Gutierrez parted from Captain Menchaca and his men. Menchaca planned to return to San Antonio, or what was then known Bejar, and overthrow the Spanish there, and then send Gutierrez new credentials and funds. 
This was never to be, however. Upon return to Bejar, Captain Menchaca was arrested and sent on to Chihuahua. Meanwhile, Gutierrez made his way to Washington, D.C., finally getting there in December. With a letter of introduction but no credentials, Gutierrez was received by the Secretary of War and John Graham, the chief clerk of the State Department. Graham took Gutierrez under his wing, and Gutierrez became a almost daily visitor at the State Department. Gutierrez met with ministers from Britain, Russia, and Denmark, but most importantly, he had several meetings with the Secretary of State and future president, James Monroe. Monroe had previously urged then-President Jefferson to seize Spanish Texas and would go on to propagate what's known as the Monroe Doctrine. Now, though, Monroe proposed to send an army to the Rio Grande and the revolutionaries in Mexico's interior under the pretext of taking Texas as part of the Louisiana Purchase. Gutierrez politely declined this offer, saying he did not have that kind of authority to negotiate for something like that. Indeed, since Gutierrez did not have those all-important credentials, Monroe advised him to return to Mexico and tell the rebel leaders that the U.S. was on their side. James Madison, of War of 1812 fame, received Gutierrez before his departure. While in D.C., Gutierrez met and befriended a fellow rebel against the Spanish, Juan José Álvarez de Toledo. Toledo, a Cuban, had been a Spanish naval officer, but had denounced the regency and fled to Philadelphia bearing his own revolutionary commission. Their friendship brought Gutierrez to Philadelphia, and while they waited out bad weather and lack of ships, the two began planning a revolution. Toledo was to remain near the seat of the U.S. government in the interest of Mexican independence, and Gutierrez would travel back to New Spain to foment rebellion in Texas. Gutierrez set sail from, Fib Gutierrez set sail from Philadelphia in February 1812 and arrived in New Orleans in late March where he hurried to present himself to the new Louisiana governor, William C.C. C. Claiborne. Claiborne introduced Gutierrez to Captain William Schaller, U.S. special agent and newly arrived from Cuba. Schaller had been a sea captain and was serving in a consular position in Cuba when he was tasked with obtaining more information about the revolution in Mexico. Unable to enter in the port of Veracruz, he planned to make his way to Natchitoches and thereby enter Mexico by way of Texas. It appears that Schaller had secret orders to cooperate with Gutierrez, and from the moment they met, Schaller took a role as Gutierrez's new mentor. The two even shared lodgings. Schaller and Gutierrez left from New Orleans and took the three-week journey back to Natchitoches. Half a year earlier, Gutierrez first arrived there a ragged fugitive. Now he returned with an American of distinction and importance to establish his new base of operations. Gutierrez's return with Schaller did not go unnoticed by Spanish officials. Spanish citizens in Natchitoches sent several couriers to the Commandant in Nacogdoches. With war between the United States and Great Britain looming, Natchitoches and Louisiana were booming with intrigue and conspiracy. With Governor Claiborne looking the other way, a group of American filibusters began to form around Gutierrez. Along with Captain Schaller, there was American Indian agent Dr. John Silby, merchant and supplier. There was American Indian agent Dr. John Silby, Samuel Davenport, merchant and supplier of Spanish Texas, and importantly, 24-year-old West Point graduate Lieutenant Augustus William McGee who resigned his commission in the United States Army 
and began to organize the Republican Army of the North. It wasn't just Americans who were interested in aiding Bernardo Gutierrez, though. French agents had approached him first in Philadelphia and again in New Orleans. A former French officer in Louisiana offered to raise and equip 400 men and advance $100,000 to purchase military stores. By mid-May, Gutierrez would write that word had come from the Rio Grande that his properties had been confiscated and his mother and brother imprisoned. The whole family had been run out of their homes and 4,200 pesos were taken from Gutierrez's wife, leaving the family impoverished. One might say that Gutierrez was a man with nothing left to lose. With the help of Schaller, Gutierrez began First sending propaganda from the Presidio in Nacogdoches and a French merchant who had run afoul of Spanish officials. The deserter was captured in late June and a month later executed in Bejar. Around the same time, those in Nacogdoches received word that the U.S. and Great Britain were at war. The revolutionaries working out of the town were sure that the U.S. would support their quest to end Spanish rule, but in D.C., the specter of Aaron Burr's failed plot to wrest Texas from Spain loomed large, and U.S. officials started walking back their promises of help to Gutierrez. Meanwhile, adventurers surrounding Gutierrez began moving with their own plans. Lieutenant Augustus McGee had, in only 40 days, built a mixed bag of men, brigands, adventurers, and gentlemen into a small army. Schaller described McGee as, quote, a very tall and robust Bostonian, handsome of person and countenance, commanding in appearance, and with all prepossessing in manner. McGee had been third in his class at West Point and spent the earlier part of 1812 clearing out bandits from neutral ground. He had been passed over for promotion, and this dissatisfaction likely left him open to this new goal, liberator of New Spain. While officials in Louisiana territory turned a blind eye to the preparations, public opinion in the states was not behind Gutierrez, Schaller, and McGee. On August 7th, a small advance party of the so-called Republican Army crossed into Spanish Texas and headed west to Nacogdoches. The next day, Colonel McGee led the main part of his force, totaling about 130 men, across the Sabine, and Gutierrez followed him two days later. Almost immediately, they were met by a Spanish trading caravan. Its leader was a 41-year-old native of Bejar named Zambrano, who had helped overturn the previous revolt. While several, while several Americans would later claim that Zambrano was leading a militia to confront the filibusters, this was almost certainly a purely trade venture. When the trading caravan was met by a party of only four or five soldiers, Zambrano and the caravan immediately booked it for Nacogdoches. Thus warned Bernardo Montero, commander of Spanish forces in Nacogdoches, stationed about 18 soldiers 20 miles from the city. These were attacked by a small party of McGee's men at daybreak on August 11th, while at mass. Only one of them escaped to warn the commandant. Montero sounded the alarm, but the propaganda had done its work. Either for independence or afraid of what the Americans might do to them, the citizens did not respond to Montero's alarm. Thus unsupported, Montero ordered his men to abandon Nacogdoches and march for Bejar. The entire Nacogdoches militia and about 10 of his soldiers deserted just outside of town. With the Spanish officials gone, the townspeople prepared to receive the advancing filibusters. A delegation was sent to meet McGee, and then around 300 people met the army outside of town and escorted the Americans into Nacogdoches. The city archive and public property were placed in McGee's charge, and 400 mules and horses, 8,000 pounds of fine wool and silver, and silver specie, probably belonging to Sambrano's trading caravan, 
were taken by the filibusters as well as public supplies and ammunition. The mules and wool would be sent back into American territory and sold to buy supplies. The force then swelled to about 400 as Tejanos and Americans from Natchitoches began to join, enticed more by the possibility of easy booty than ideals. With these men, about 100 Tejanos and about 300 Americans, Magui headed west, intent initially on confronting Governor Santísima Trinidad de Salcedo. The army took a village known alternatively as Salcedo, Spanish Hill, or Trinidad on the east bank of the Trinity River and hunkered down to wait for cooler weather because it was September and hot as heck. They were joined by deserters from Bejar who reported that Governor Salcedo had concentrated his forces there. Meanwhile, Schaller wrote that there was a perfect mania for volunteering for New Spain. By October, the so-called Liberty Army numbered 600. Schaller wrote Monroe that he was so sure he would be able to head into Mexico that he would have left already, but he didn't want to appear as to have a connection to the Magui Gutierrez expedition. His expectations, however, were smashed. Secretary of State Monroe had some 10 weeks earlier dispatched a Dr. John Hamilton Robinson on a mission to the Commandant General of the Interior Provinces in, in Chihuahua. Robinson was tasked to tell the Commandant General that the President of the U.S. was worried about the actions of certain persons in neutral ground who were disregarding the authority and endangering the welfare of both the United States and Spain. Robinson was to propose the establishment of commercial relations and settle their boundary issues by amicable negotiations. Robinson reached the camp on the Trinity River on the evening of October 15th, displaying the U.S. flag on his baggage. With rumor rife in the camp, McGee met with Robinson and wrung out several conditions from Robinson before allowing him to head on to Behar. Among these were that Robinson would leave the flag and that he would take a passport of the newly declared Texas Republic. Three days later, the Army of the North broke camp in high spirits. Gutierrez wrote that the army was well-armed, united, and, and, quote, determined to besiege the inferno itself. They crossed the Brazos and at the Colorado learned that Governor Salcedo intended to ambush them at the Guadalupe. McGee turned his army south and made for Presidio La Bahia, near modern Goliad, a site of the infamous Goliad massacre of a certain more celebrated revolution. As they approached on November 7th, the militiaman who had remained at the Presidio after the retreat of the regular soldiers to Behar surrendered. A reported 200 citizens joined the Republican army and they spent several days settling into the large square stone fort, which boasted two bastions, which the army quickly mounted with cannon. There's a difference of opinion on when royal forces made their counterattack on the fort, anywhere between three to 10 days, depending on whose accounting you believe. But with the failure of the initial attack, what followed was a four-month siege. Royalist commanders were determined to starve out the filibusters and rebels. The Americans, fully swallowing their own propaganda, as Americans are wont to do, believed that the Royalist troops would desert in droves to the Army of the North. The opposite is what happened. Some of their own men went to the Royalist side, having lost confidence when met by real opposition for the first time. Some would lay the blame at the feet of Robinson and his mission from the present to the Spanish. The situation seemed untenable and a war council was held to consider the Spanish's terms of surrender. 
These were essentially the surrender of American arms, handing over of Tejano rebels, and the departure of the Americans with one gun per every five men so they could hunt. This the Army of the North found unacceptable. Apparently, Gutierrez had not been consulted on these negotiations and would later accuse McGee of agreeing to turn him over to the Spanish for 15,000 pesos. Both men remained discouraged by the siege, each sending letters to their confederates in Natchitoches, that they may have to abandon La Bahia and fight their way to freedom if the siege continued for much longer. McGee wrote to Schaller, quote, We are differently received in this country to what we expected. Indeed, you have no conception of the treachery of this people. He then called for the total annexation of he then called for the total annexation of Texas to the Rio Grande, saying, My hopes of effecting a revolution in this country with the means I now hold are totally blasted, but I am strong enough to open my road to wherever I choose to go. These letters reached Schaller a couple of weeks into December, in the possession of Davenport. Davenport's view on the situation in La Bahia was much rosier. He reported that the army was 600 strong and in good spirits, with enough food to last four months and plenty of ammunition. Gutierrez had installed a forge and was personally directing the repair of arms and equipage, only leaving the forge during the frequent skirmishes with the Spanish. Ultimately, in this case, Davenport's optimism was proven correct. The siege dragged from September into February, and in the many skirmishes, the Republicans mostly came out on top. The Spanish suffered from lack of supplies and the wretched Texas winter, which, as one who grew up in a town about an hour and a half straight east of Goliad, I can tell you was likely wet and gloomy and with a bitter north wind. Loyalists began, as previously hoped, defecting to the Republican side. McGee, however, would not survive to see the end of the siege. He had been ill with what contemporary sources called a wasting fever since leaving their Trinidad encampment. Some reported that he either had taken poison to avoid being shot for allegedly trying to sell out Gutierrez or been poisoned by border ruffians in revenge for suppressing their banditry in neutral ground. The truth is he likely had contracted tuberculosis or malaria, both of which were common at the time. Whatever the cause, he died on February 8th, and when he was buried, the Spanish, quote, contributed their might in honoring the dead by discharging their cannon, rolling the balls around the graveyard. After yet another furious battle with Lavajia's defenders ended in a loss for the royalists, Salcedo ordered his troops to retreat back to Bejar on February 19th, weighed down by wounded and unhappy soldiers who continued to desert along the way. With McGee dead, Samuel Kemper was left commander of the Americans and Ruman Ross his second-in-command. Schaller described Kemper as, quote, an excellent executive officer, but of no education and with doubtful capacity of chief command. Not a ringing endorsement. McGee's death also allowed Gutierrez to take a stronger leadership position. As the Republican army prepared to move north on Bejar, they were joined by further reinforcements. Around 25 Americans rolled in with Captain Gaines, along with a similar number of the Cushata tribe led by a half European called Charlie Roll led by a half European called Charlie Rollins. More Native Americans from the Lipan and Tonkawa tribes reportedly joined, but their numbers are claimed anywhere between 55 and 300, which personally seems unlikely. Also joining the army was a force of Republican Tejanos from Nacogdoches, numbering about 180. The 
prisoners and Spanish deserters were organized into three companies and a garrison of 16 captured soldiers from the mission at Refugio also joined the Republicans. All in all, their numbers were reportedly between about 500 and 900 men, depending on whose reports you believe. With their armors thus swelled, the army made north for Behar on March 25th. There were no wagons or cannon at this point, with every man carrying his own supplies. On the other hand, there were so many livestock that they were a major pain in the ass, quote, tormenting the poor tired soldier during the night, and if they failed to get an ample supply of food, they would nibble and bite him on the march. Many of the men not having a second shirt were eaten raw on the back and shoulders. The writer of this account, William McLean, suspected that the animals were after the salt in the sweat of the marching men. On March 29th, the army was on the east side of Salado Creek, about 20 miles from Behar, coming up the low road, hoping to find food and quarters at Espada Mission, when their scouts found an enemy ambush on the upper road. Governor Salcedo's men were said to number some 1,200 men and six brass cannons, or as McCain put it, the entire male population of Texas. The battle was bloody but brief, lasting no more than an hour. The Royalist forces were completely routed, and the Republicans captured most of the Spanish arms, cannon, and livestock. The Army of the North spent the night at the mission as planned, and then moved another five miles to spend the next night at the Mission Concepcion, where they were joined by yet more deserters, militiamen, and residents. Finally, on April 1st, Kemper's men marched in battle formation to the gates of Behar. Governor Salcedo sent out three envoys under a flag of truce with a message addressed to the commanders of the troops in the Mission Concepcion. Salcedo offered to surrender the city on 13 conditions, four of which were in the interest of humanity, quote unquote. He asked that the city not be looted, that the residents not be deprived of their religion, arms, property, or privileges, that no taxes be imposed, and the sick be cared for. Salcedo also asked that his troops, along with their provisions, cannon, and ammunition, be allowed to withdraw, that such citizens that wanted to could leave, and that the Spanish officials not be mistreated. Gutierrez and Kemper accepted the humanitarian quest, but the others they refused outright. A second surrender proposal was also rejected, and Salcedo and Herrera were forced to surrender unconditionally to prevent another siege. The story goes that Governor Salcedo offered his sword to a Captain Taylor who refused him and sent him on to Colonel Kemper, who sent the governor on to General Gutierrez. Deeply frustrated and insulted, Salcedo then stuck his sword in the earth before Gutierrez and turned away. Salcedo, governor of Spanish Texas, Governor Herrera of Nuevo León, and commander of the auxiliary forces in Texas, along with 12 others, were in prison. Their remaining soldiers were enfolded into the invading Republican army and passed their arms under the green flag of the First Republic of Texas. This victory quickly turned ugly, though. With Schaller and Gutierrez's propaganda against the Spanish intermixed with bigoted campaigns from American publisher, hatred for the Spanish was at a fever pitch in the city. On the evening of April the 3rd, Salcedo, Herrera, and the other 12 prisoners were taken out of Bejar under escort of 60 mountain men. In charge was Antonio Delgado, a former corporal in the Bejar militia. The Americans had been assured by the ruling junta in Bejar that the prisoners 
were to be escorted to Matagorda Bay, there to board a vessel to safety in the U.S. McLean reported that Gutierrez had proposed that the prisoners could be held in La Bahia in more security, and the Americans had no reason to suspect his intentions. Instead of being taken to the Presidio or sent forth from Matagorda Bay, the prisoners' journey ended six miles south of Bejar, near the recent battlefield. The royalists were made to strip and robbed of their valuables. Governor Salcedo's tongue was cut out, and after being refused the final sacrament, the prisoners were beheaded, their bodies left to rot in the field. Delgado and his Republican detachment returned to Bejar in the morning and reported the prisoners had been executed to Gutierrez. The native Republicans rejoiced, but the Americans were horror-stricken. A group of them hurried to the execution site and buried the slain prisoners. Delgado was court-martialed. However, he justified the murder of the prisoners by saying that Salcedo had his father and brother killed and their heads dragged through the street. The veracity of the story cannot be determined now, but apparently he was believed and acquitted. Gutierrez's own part in this stain has been debated. He swore to the Americans that he knew nothing, and Delgado acted on his own, but others implicated him indirectly. Whatever the truth, it cast a pall over the expedition. Meanwhile, Gutierrez was in the process of building a provisional government in Bejar. A declaration of independence was adopted on April 6, 1813, quote, shaking off the yoke of European domination. Its authors are unknown, but the writing shows influence of both American and Spanish ideas. Thus justified in writing, however specious some of the declaration's claims, Gutierrez then appointed a president, a secretary, and a five and five advisors to form a ruling junta, which would have full power to write a constitution and form a real government. Gutierrez was, of course, made president, and the junta was made up of other locals and completely excluded the American leadership from the government-making process, likely adding to the disaffection of Kemper and the other American officers. The government they formed was on the lines of the old royalist regime. It was what the Tejanos knew, after all. Gutierrez was named President Protector and was the supreme head of the new Texas Republic. He was assisted by a 12-man junta, which met one day each week. The junta controlled all public affairs, from elected officials to the judiciary, and all its acts were subject to Gutierrez. To put it mildly, the Americans were grievously disappointed at being kept out of the loop of power. Most of their top officers, from Kemper down, began taking long furloughs and hightailing it back to Natchitoches. Many of their seasoned veterans also went home, while adventurous volunteers began pouring into Bejar, swelling the army to over 1,500. With their officers gone, the remaining soldiery and new recruits ran amok. Distress between the Tejanos and the Americans rose as young Anglo-Americans monopolized the interest of the city's young ladies, and disgruntled Tejanos spread rumors that the Americans had been responsible for the deaths of Salcedo and the other prisoners. With Kemper and the others gone, command now landed in the hands of Lieutenant Colonel Reuben Ross. All the while, Gutierrez planned to liberate the rest of Mexico from Spanish royalists. He sent proclamations to several villas in the Rio Grande Valley in April and May, making it known that the Texas Republic, with American help, was dedicated to the liberation of all New Spain. He urged the people to follow his and Bejar's example in declaring independence and joining Texas. So confident was Gutierrez that he also sent for his wife and children to join him in Bejar. Unfortunately, 
the end of his leadership and the downfall of the new republic appeared on the Texas Louisiana frontier in the form of Jose Alvarez de Toledo. And that's where we'll pick up next episode as American meddling erodes the revolution and it all ends in ignominy and bloodshed. Special thanks to Carol Triscavaca for providing some supplemental materials. And remember, you can find the show notes at thetexocentrist.com. Please follow me at thetexocentrist on Twitter for updates about the show. And if you have any comments or to suggest an episode topic, you can email me at thetexocentrist at gmail.com. Thank you. Best wishes.